0: Slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: I'm Mick Garrison. It's time once again for the fun-size version of postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And at my virtual side is producer Joe Russo to ask your questions of me on your behalf. Joe, how are you? I am well, Mick. How are you? never better.
2: Good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of great questions this week. So you oh, ready for to a jump
1: change, in?
2: Huh? Yeah. Uh, well, we always get good questions. <laughs> right? We always do. We always do. And uh, though I will say um, it would be super helpful if moving forward, our our great post mortimers would uh, maybe hashtag AMA uh, so I can find the questions a little easier. <laughs> they're they're yeah, spread a out all over the. They're spread out all over the social media verse, but uh, um, but I I've gathered them and I've I've collated the uh, the best of the best. So
1: excellent. I expect nothing less.
2: Uh, all right. Well, here is a uh, very timely one to kind of kick us off. Okay. Spooky WV asks. Mick, who would you cast play yourself in the inevitable adaptation of Master of Horror, the official biography
1: of Mick Garris? Let's call that the least likely film adaptation ever to happen. (laughs) I can i can give you a personal guarantee there will never be anyone playing mick garris nor will there be a life story uh, on on any media other than I, the book
2: i don't know i mean like, yes you do what what if, what if you could do like it would be like the forrest gump spanning story of horror you know <laughs> you I, were there for all these moments you know uh,
1: uh I I think it's unlikely. I've played myself in a couple of small movies like Digging Up the Marrow and uh, um, Brutal Massacre, but uh, uh, that's about the extent of my acting ability.
2: Well, I was gonna say it would be great if we could get, you ever seen that photo of uh, Steven Soderbergh with the long white hair? Yeah, Uh, yeah, with the wig on. Yeah, we should get him to do it. You can play Fair McCarrison. enough. Yeah.
1: He he's as much an actor as I am, I guess. No. No, he's actually carried one of his features all the way through. I forget which one, the name. There you go. See?
2: Yeah. Perfect. Perfect to play, Mick Harris. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 but seriously, though, congratulations on the release of the book. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Thank you.
1: As, as we're recording today, um, this afternoon, we're going to be doing a big signing at Dark Delicacies with the author, Abby Bernstein, and a bunch of friends and, and co-workers who, who were interviewed for the book. So a lot of surprise guests. So it should be a good time.
2: I bet. Uh, I bet fans who hear this days after will be very jealous they missed it. Um, <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> uh, you never know. Um, all right. Herkermer Homokia writes. Are there? Yeah, I know. Quite a quite a name. Are there any movie traditions Mick observes? For example, I just watched Friday the Thirteenth on Friday the Thirteenth. Mick, are there any movies that you watch religiously uh, based on the
1: calendar year? Well, not generally. I'm not that much of a traditionalist, but I must admit, every summer we do watch Jaws.
0: Ah, 4th of July.
1: Yeah, well, not necessarily on that day, but definitely during the summer, we will uh, break out the Jaws, and now that it's on on 4K, that's an even bigger treat.
2: Oh, I bet. And then on the 85-inch TV, I'm sure it looks great.
1: It kills.
2: (laughs) Ah! Ah! Mark asks, Mick and Joe, can you recall the first time you saw Night of the Living Dead? And were you surprised by the ending?
1: Well, even though I was around in 68 when it came out, um, I didn't see it until a few years after. So, um yeah, the ending was still devastating because it had not been spoiled for me. Um, but, it had been around in the genre magazines and people talking about it for years and it just somehow i missed it on its initial release so it was probably maybe 72 or so that i finally did get to see it in a theater and i think some of its impact was diminished a little bit the the shocking elements because it was for three or four years after the fact but it's still powerful and it's it's still iconic and it did change the course of, uh, American horror cinema. I,
2: I, uh, I, I mean, I wish I had seen it, uh, earlier on before, you know, I, I kind of went in knowing the legacy of it. Um, you know, and I'm sure we've talked about this a lot. Like when I was growing up, I wasn't really allowed to watch R-rated movies until, you know, I was well into my teenage years. And well, they didn't uh, even
1: have R-rated movies until 1968 when the, the motion picture code happened.
2: So. so, you know, horror movies when I was a kid were more like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, not watching, yes. uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead. But, but, you know, when I was late high school and in college, video stores started to do the uh, rent three movies at a time thing. Right. And uh, and and that's when I I caught up on a lot of horror movies and I, I so I saw it on video uh, when, I, when I was in late high school um, and I mean it's just it's amazing it's still so powerful I finally got to see it on the big screen uh, at the International Horror and Sci-Fi Film Festival in Phoenix. And, oh yeah. yeah, and it it's uh, it's you know it's one of the
1: best for a if reason ever if ever a movie was made for the theatrical experience that's one of the most most horror films i think uh work best in that collegial atmosphere where you're surrounded by the contagion of fear
2: oh yeah no
1: i agree but uh but
2: it was nice to be able to kind of watch night of the living dead and dawn of the dead and day of the dead kind of Kind of literally all back to back.
1: Yeah, that they was, were already all in existence. They were all there. I yeah. could
2: I could binge them. Uh, so before them before by. binging before binging was cool,
1: That's um, right. or even a thing. <laughs> or even a thing.
2: Uh, I thought this was a really interesting question. Uh, Kent of the Dead asks Mick and Joe, "Do you need a college degree to get your writing notice and sell a screenplay?"
1: um if you do that's a big surprise to me because i don't have a college degree i have a two-year degree but i never finished uh at i went to san diego state university but uh you left. mean
2: you mean no one stopped you and said mick we can't buy the screenplay because you don't have a four-year
1: degree somehow that was the case yeah um <laughs> you know i think it's the creative arts are definitely a place where a an education is not required. Although any place you learn anything is helpful, whether it's the school of life or a university or or uh, traveling or, or whatever, uh, the more you know, the better an artist you are, and the, the mm-hmm. more you experience, the better an artist you are. But in this case. Um, I don't think anybody is looking for a degree in screenwriting because it doesn't mean that you're a talented screenwriter. It means that you went through the school system and got your degree. Yeah,
2: I agree. I mean, I think, I think that the, the two sides of this coin are, one, uh, going to college, you will be exposed to literature and movies and screenplays and you'll be writing and you'll be hopefully honing your, your craft of writing. But those are all things you can do outside of college too. Uh, there's no reason you can't be an avid reader and and read screenplays and get better and better and write and write and write. Uh, so I yeah I I don't I don't think you know one necessarily helps the other. And I think you know if you're a great writer, you're a great writer, and no no amount of schooling is going to change that.
1: It can um, help, you know. It, it it can certainly help because. You know, grammar does matter. Yes, grammar matters. When somebody's reading a screenplay and it's filled with uh, there spelled the incorrect way, the incorrect (laughs) usage of there, or, uh, you know, other examples like that. Mm -hmm. Um, As a producer, when I was doing Masters of Horror and I was reading tons of scripts, if I was reading a bunch of grammatical uh, mess, I would just toss it aside because I couldn't get through it. Yeah. I don't blame you. Uh, yeah. I, and, and I mean,
2: I, maybe I'm wrong. Quentin Tarantino, I believe is another famous screenwriter without a, a college
1: degree. Right. Right. Like, and a, a guy whose grammar is not perfect. <laughs> no, no. Cause I think it wasn't the power. It, yeah, yeah. The, the power it? Of it was his Lawrence,
2: script. Lawrence yeah. Bender who like cleaned up his first script for him. Right. Like that was the, yeah. he typed it up and fixed all the grammar. and. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, But the power of his writing is so great and his dialogue Mm -hmm. and his characters Mm -hmm. and the momentum that you can feel that on the page. Yeah. Now, of course
2: he's the, uh, you know, extreme exception, right? Yeah. But, but but it is possible. Uh, and no one is going to stop and ask, you know, where you went to school before they read your screenplay.
1: Mm, That's not been my experience that I've ever been asked.
2: Me neither. Uh, Demir writes, making Joe, some people have an agent, some have managers, some have both. What's the main difference between them? And do you need both an agent and a manager?
1: It's a complicated answer because it's not the same as it was even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Agents and managers have kind of become very similar in their operation. It used to be a personal manager. The whole title is personal manager worked more closely with you on your career and would read and give you feedback and mm-hmm. and take a personal interest in your career that was taken up more of their time than an agent who was there to mostly field calls, put you out for uh, uh, potential jobs, to know what writing and directing assignments were open and be even more connected, the major agency in particular, All those agencies would have a very strong connection to the studios and producers and independents and all. Managers were a little more specialized, but it's not been the case. There was a time where I had a personal manager, a business manager, an agent, and an attorney. And uh, I no longer have an agent. I was with CAA for 20 years, and then I was with Paradigm for a while. And now I just have managers and they seem to do the trick for me. Anything I would need from an agency, I seem to get from from my managers.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, well, and, and notably, you left your agency when... The Writers Guild had a campaign against the agencies and, and everybody left their, their agents uh that was in the writers' guild. So I think right. a and lot I found of that
1: I found that my life didn't change. <laughs> exactly. And
2: that was that was what I was getting at. Was I think a lot of writers discovered that their managers could do the jobs that that the agents were doing, or maybe were doing them for the agents to begin with.
1: Uh and so, legally, California law has that an agent. Can only earn ten percent uh, mm-hmm. of of your income, whereas a manager, until recently, it was anything they wanted. Some of them would take as much as fifty percent of their clients. Oh my God. Or unethical ones. But yeah. they've been reined in a bit. I think it's now down to fifteen or twenty percent max. That it
2: they should can. be should be ten percent. It should be, 10%. Uh, it should should be, be. It and should a lot be. of
1: and a lot of managers, if you're already represented by an agent for ten percent they will reasonably set their rates at 10 percent, but yeah some of them still go up to 15
2: and 20 the, the, the standard is uh 10 for the agent 10 for the manager and five percent for the lawyer uh exactly. that's 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 the usual so 25 percent of your money goes out the door if you have all three
1: <laughs> and if you have a business manager that's either a percentage or a flat rate as well uh, oh my goodness take, yeah take yeah. care yeah. of the money end of things
2: it's amazing anyone ever survives uh yeah no the the make make it the nail on the head i mean your manager is supposed to be there to help you with the creative and the agent's supposed to be there to help you uh take that creative and connect it to the people who will buy it but the uh you know the the line is blurred and it really kind of just depends on the person you know yeah and uh, my
1: managers used to be agents so yeah uh, same, one same, of my same managers, with mine
2: yeah same with one mine of,
1: one yeah. of my managers used to be one of the head agents at CAA from the time of its founding but now he's with the management company and I couldn't be happier.
2: Yeah yeah, yeah. no I mean it's it's uh um it's like I said it's up it's up to the person and um you know, my agent likes to give notes. My manager likes to <laughs> beat the drum and go set meetings. You know what I mean? So like, it's, yeah. you never know, you never know. So uh that is, so yeah, there you go. There's the difference. And and do you think, I mean, if you're in a perfect world, I know you're happy with, with what they're doing, but if, would you ever consider signing with an agent again?
1: If uh, I felt that they would uh offer more opportunities to me than I I would potentially move in uh, with an agent as well. Um, But uh, so far that's, that's not happening, but uh, I'm, I'm open to any possibilities as usual because you You never never know know what the next door opens to you will be.
2: There you go. You never know. All right. Peter writes, you've said before that your favorite way to write is to just start. No outline and let the characters create the story. But what kind of work do you do before you reach the stage of writing fade
1: in? <laughs> well, if it's on spec, uh, it's just been getting an idea that inspires me to sit down and do it. Um, if it's something that requires uh, research or is an assignment, I'll give you the example of Hocus Pocus. That was a, a story that was already uh, created in the mind of David Kirschner, the producer, and I was brought in to be the first screenwriter on that. So I did a lot of research. I went to Salem, Massachusetts, and and went to all of those locations and learned a lot about the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, and you know, did a lot of note-taking and, you know, books and physical excursions uh, and did an outline and then a, a breakdown and then a first draft and all of that but virtually every time I'm writing something on my own and my most recent spec screenplay is something that takes place in 1936. So I do some research on the subject in that regard, but if it's something contemporary and it's just a story I'm telling, uh, I rarely do anything but uh, as, as our uh, questioner, inquisitor, uh, said, um, I basically just start, you know, um, with an idea. So,
2: yeah, it's so, I mean, look, I've, I know there are writers like that out there. It still blows my mind every time I hear it. Cause I am, uh, I am an outline guy.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, but, you were a development exec too.
2: True. True. Yeah, no. So I, I, I guess I was kind of trained in, in expecting that, but I, I just feel like I need, I need that roadmap, you know, um, I kind of have to know where I'm going so I can connect the dots. For me, it's more of an intuitive process. Yeah, no. And that's, and that's amazing. Uh, So, you know, every, every writer is different. Every writer is going to have their own path. Um,
1: Absolutely. And that's, what's great about the creative process. No one creates the same. No, no, they do not.
2: Uh, But speaking of kind of work, you touched on research a little bit, but um, this next question from Ben uh, in, you know, in prepping a story has there ever been any research that you've come across that's you've has entered your daily life or blew your mind as something you didn't already know.
1: I wish. Um, yeah, well, probably the one would be Hocus Pocus. I mean, yeah. we come back to something that's almost 30 years old uh, as far as my writing experience. Um just learning so much about the Salem witch trials and what happened here in this country in its infancy was pretty overwhelming. But does it affect my daily life? Uh, No, but it was uh, quite a revelation for me.
2: It is pretty interesting, though, that in the current political climate, how mass hysteria is still very much a uh, thing. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes the term witch hunt is as contemporary now as it was in 1692
2: absolutely which that i guess is a little sad uh i you know i i working on a, a project you know that that hopefully will be going shortly uh but you know it was it was the character is a locksmith. Um, and I don't know anything <laughs> about locksmithing. So I had to do a lot of research to figure out, you know, how do you how do you locksmith and how do you pick a lock and like what tools do you need? And so now I feel like I, I've learned all these these things that I don't know if I'll use in my
1: daily life. But well, there's a now. career in crime <laughs> waiting for you, Joe.
2: That's right. That's right. When everything goes belly up, I will uh, <laughs> I will turn to picking locks. Um, but, you know, I think but it, I think it's important to do that research because that's how you get your characters to sound more authentic.
1: You absolutely. Know? So
2: if you can't, if you don't know it and you can't explain it, how do you expect anyone to buy it? You know?
1: Exactly. So. And and the feel that it's lived in, that the character is a lived in character that existed before the opening titles and after the end credits roll. Um, That's the whole point of, of writing and writing well. Exactly. Uh Rick writes,
2: Nick, you've spoken about, how another director was originally signed on to Sleepwalkers uh, before being removed because he drastically altered the screenplay. I'm wondering if you're able to share what those
1: differences were. Well, I never read his rewrites, um, but the main one that I was told, and I was told this by Stephen King, was there was a, a journey to the planet of Sleepwalkers so if you can imagine such a thing it could not be more far removed than the Norman Rockwell goes to hell quality of the movie as it exists and sure. as as was written by King so um yeah I don't know what else uh was in it but that that was a pretty staggering
2: change I mean yeah I mean he changed it to, to the aliens basically <laughs> <laughs> pretty, much, pretty much uh yeah I could see why that's um you know, would, would maybe ruffle the, the king's feathers.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> at least it would make you not want to put your name in the title.
2: <laughs> sure. Yeah, and that was, that was the big selling point, right? Yeah, so. it,
1: it was no longer King. It was somebody else. Yeah,
2: yeah. So that's interesting, though, but they kept you away from those drafts. Um, well, because think-
1: it didn't have anything to do with the movie we were going to make. You right. know, right. they right. wanted to make king screenplay they mm-hmm. had some notes that, and they they got a writer director who could tend to those notes mm-hmm. who could also make king happy as as well as make the studio happy and be happy myself with with having some creative input of my own in, right in the, in the development process so did
2: they give you like i guess it would be an older draft they they had to read that
1: yeah there was one draft that king had done Right. And then he'd done a little bit of tweaking, but mostly that happened after because this director came in right. and and did his tinkering. And um, that was what set it all in motion. Interesting.
2: There you go. Well, that is the, uh, the mystery solved about sleepwalkers. And uh, <laughs> on that note, Mick, thank you for sitting down and, and doing another Ask Mick Anything. I know our fans love it, and I do well, too. And-
1: and and so. thanks to our listeners and fans and keep the questions coming. And Joe, tell them where to send them so that they're not all over the internet.
2: Ha. You can send them to Mick on Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM uh, or to me on Twitter at Joe Russo tweets or on Instagram at Joe Russo Graham. That's great. Thanks,
1: Joe. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.